To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One individual who will be on the debate stage, we're happy that he's joining us, is North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, joining us from New York. Um, Governor, thank you so much for your time. You've worked hard to not make the 2024 presidential election about the former president, but he is the front runner and the de facto standard bearer of your party. He also held the job at one point. So why shouldn't it be him? Well, Anne-Marie, you know, I've come from the private sector. I spent 30 years in the private sector uh, before I got in, before I had the opportunity. My first job I ever ran for in politics was the governor of North Dakota. But uh, I know that uh, if you were, you know, and I've been a, a corporate officer or CEO or chairman of public companies for 20 years straight, right up until the day before I became governor, if we had a really open, if we had a key position available in the company, uh, and even if you had somebody that had worked for you before, maybe they'd held the position before, then, hey, have a have a big interview pool. Have have a large group of candidates because competition's great. It's great for the Republican Party. It's great for the country. It's great when companies are trying to keep, fill key positions. And this, of course, uh, in many ways, the most important job in our country. And so, uh, giving Republicans a choice next January when the voting starts, uh, I think is fantastic. And so, uh, I've I've been on the record saying I don't think the field is too big. I mean, if this is the most important job in the world, and you had twelve people applied, and maybe only seven or eight are going to make it through the first hurdle. So Seems like a pretty small pool in the private sector. We'd been reposting. Right. But if this was a sport, you'd obviously be going against the individual that's leading the way. And a lot of people on the debate stage are not willing to go there. I'm guessing, though, if you thought former President Trump did a good job, you wouldn't be running yourself. Well, as someone who uh, supported President Trump and his policies uh, uh, during the, the four years he was in office, were very positive for North Dakota. Uh, but obviously, I'm running, but I'm running, I'm running to beat Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is wrong. He's wrong on the economy. He's wrong on energy policy, and he's wrong on national security. And these things are hurting every American. So our reason for running is to improve the life of every American, bring out the best of America. And we, we we're doing that in North Dakota. We know we can do that in the country. Well, the path to Joe Biden goes through the front runner, theoretically. Governor, are you preparing to go after Donald Trump at the debate next week, whether or not he is actually in attendance? Well, we've got a very different spot. As you've noted, among the right now, there's uh, seven, either going to be seven or eight people on the debate stage. We're the least well known of any of those folks that, you know, but I'd love to court quote George Will, uh, you know, he wrote an article that said this is the most qualified presidential candidate you've never, ever heard of, meaning talking about about myself. <laughs> and so we've got a job that's different. I mean, if you've held national office, if you've run for president before, if you've been a pundit on a national cable channel, uh, if you've been a governor of a state next to a large metro with national press, you've got 100% name recognition. We've got very low name recognition. So part of our job next week, I know when I was in the private sector, when we were doing a start 
startup. You know, I came from a town of 300 people. Uh, my dad passed away when I was a freshman in high school. I got a little bit of farm ground, mortgaged that. That became the seed capital for Great Plains Software. We built that into a company that uh, went public 14 years later. Uh, we got a, we had a fabulous run as a public company, got acquired by Microsoft for $1.1 billion. I stayed there for seven years, uh, leading Microsoft Business Solutions. Satya Nadella, uh, a friend, was a direct report of mine during the entire time that I was there. But I know one thing, when, when you're in that, when we're in that business, we never came out. When we were the little guy, when we were the startup, we didn't come out and start attacking the market leader. We had to tell customers what we did and why our product was better. And it's the same thing here. Right now, at this stage of the game and with this many candidates, yeah. uh, we got to keep just telling people who we are and what we can do for this country. So, Governor, to your point on name recognition, in order to qualify for this first debate, you are offering anyone who donated $1 to your campaign $20 in return. That helped you reach the donor threshold. You also have the 1% polling threshold that you need. The next debate, the second one in September, has an even higher donor threshold, which I understand that you already have crossed. But you also have to have 3% in the polls. Theoretically, the dollars aren't necessarily going to solve that problem for you. So how do you make it happen? Well, I, let me just say again on our, our promotion, if, if people uh, you know, said to us and the, the political insiders that created these rules, if you went to some firm and said, hey, uh, you know, help us get 40,000 donors, they estimated it would cost $100 per, per, for getting one additional donor using the traditional, you know, the best-in-class uh, political system. We said, hey, we think there's a way to do that in an entrepreneurial way at a fraction of the cost, and we got this thing done for one-fifth the cost of what a traditional political thing. I said I'd rather give money to our supporters than give it to a political fundraising firm. And then, of course, what we did give out was the Biden inflation relief card. And, of course, when we've got, you know, the highest interest rates in 22 years, inflation, uh, you know, where the average family's paying $700 a month more to put food in, food on the table and gas in their car, uh, it was great. And, of course, we got a lot of attention for that. And then it brought people to our website, you know, DougBurgham.com. And then when they came, they said, hey, we, we like what this person doing. They're talking about economy, energy, and national security at every stop. Uh, maybe we should get behind them. So some people gave more than a dollar. Some people, you know, gave a dollar but bought a $24 t-shirt. I mean, we, we're just like, and now they're coming back just like you would. Any entrepreneur that starts an online store has got to have a promotion. So I just, it's just interesting, the world of politics versus the world of business where, where you know, as a entrepreneur, you know, we figured out a way without complaint, let's figure out a way to, to hack, hack this system. And we did. Uh, well, and now we're off and running. <laughs> it's very expensive to run for public office, but you come from um, some means. How much of your own capital are you willing to spend for this campaign? Well, I certainly don't have enough money to uh, fund a presidential campaign of my own, and this isn't about being a self-funder. If you're going to you know, get a movement going in the country where people say, uh, we've got to focus on the things that matter to the most, the most number of people, uh, you've got to have a broad base of donors. And we're grateful for those 50,000-plus uh, people that have donated to our campaign, but I'm also grateful for all the volunteers. I'm grateful that we've got CEOs and business leaders across the country that are working for free in our campaign because they see what a disaster they buy economic policy have been. They see how the energy policy of the Biden administration really could have been written by China because what we're just going to trade OPEC for a dependence on China and get all of our EV batteries from, from China when they control 85% of the rare earth minerals in the world. And if the battery's made in China, it's coming from a plant that's powered by coal. I mean, it doesn't. if you cared about the environment, you would want to have every ounce of energy produced in our country because we do it cleaner, better, and safer than anyone that here. And the energy policies are empowering dictators. Putin would have 
never invaded Ukraine if he didn't have all of Western Europe dependent on his energy. So we say two things. We say innovation, not regulation. That's how we get this economy sprinting and not crawling. And then relative to energy policy, we just have to start selling energy to our friends and allies and stop buying it from our from our enemies. It's just that simple. And cut the red tape that would allow us to do that uh, because it's an issue. National security begins with energy security. And, it, and it also it begins with border security. And that's another area where Biden is just completely failing with 110,000 overdose deaths last year. We lost the equivalent of two Vietnams in one year, 300 people a day. Those are sons and daughters and nieces and nephews. And, and all of that is coming from 70% of those are fentanyl poisonings. They're not really overdose, fentanyl poisoning coming from precursors that are coming from China across an open border. Governor, if we could just talk about energy for a moment, the U.S. is the largest oil producer in the world, and we do bring in imports, but our top import importers come from Canada and Mexico. Um, we don't have anything else coming from Russia, and the numbers from Saudi Arabia have absolutely dwindled under from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. At the same time, the U.S. has now become a supplier of really last resort, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Aren't those numbers good? Don't you agree with what the Biden administration is doing? Well, I... I don't, and I'll tell you two reasons why I don't. One is, at the time of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, we were importing 400,000 barrels of oil a day equivalent into the northeastern part of this country, a lot of it dirty Russian heating oil. And go take a look in New Hampshire. Uh, they have 41% of the, their citizens are still heating their homes with, with dirty heating oil because they can't get clean natural gas from Pennsylvania because you can't get a pipeline permitted in this country that would allow Americans to get the lowest carbon, cleanest fuel we can bought from American uh, suppliers. So we've got issues like that across the, across the country. And then, of course, belatedly, the Biden administration put sanctions on Russian oil, but the rest of the world didn't join in with us. And as you know, you've got the numbers in front of you. China, who imports 10 million barrels of oil a day. They're the largest importer. They're, they're getting Russian mm -hmm. gas and oil at 20% off. And I know every farmer in America would like to be filling their tank with diesel at 20% off, but you can't. We're paying full price here, but we're subsidizing China's economy and they're getting low cost energy because of our failed sanctions. So should we be sanctioning though Russian oil instead of allowing this price cap the way the U.S. has sanctions on Iranian crude? Well, you understand how this works. I mean, if you sanction something and, you know, only less than half of the world's economy goes with you, it's not really a sanction. Then we're just saying, like, we're not going to buy it. And, and then you drive the price down somewhat, but then everybody else gets discounted oil. And then when, when China starts paying for that oil in yuan instead of U.S. dollars, it further erodes the dollar. So, uh, you know, I... I I can't defend how that was good for, not good for America, not good for our economy. It's, again, we're subsidizing our number one competitor. We're in a cold war with China and we're in a, you know, we're in an actual proxy war with Russia. And some of these, some of these policies are benefiting our adversaries. Governor, you've said that we're in a cold war with China line many times. How can that war be won without it turning into an actual war, without provoking Beijing too much? Well, it's going to take a, a whole of government approach. When Ronald Reagan won the the Cold War with, with uh, Russia, uh, it was a simpler time. We got our economy rolling, and that's how we beat him, was the U.S. economy just completely outstripped a centrally managed Russian economy. But the two economies weren't very connected, and the Russian economy in terms of actual GDP size was much smaller. Now we're in a Cold War with a country that's got the number two economy in the world, and our economies are in, you know interconnected in a number of different ways. And so 
so we, we have to be very thoughtful, but it, it's going to take a diplomatic approach. It's going to take a, a, you know, an information approach, educating, uh, educating our citizens, you know, that when you buy an electric battery, you know, from China if with the, your federal government subsidy and your subsidized car, your subsidized uh, charging station, that you may not be helping the environment because of the way that battery was produced or where the minerals were, were come from. And it's going to take some military because uh, the way, of course, strength through peace, if we, if we present a credible threat, uh, then it doesn't become a real war. If we start showing the kind of weakness that we, you know, winked and signaled after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and with Biden's comments that basically greenlighted Putin uh, and, you know, all of, you know, the, the Russian mafia crowd that is running Russia to invade Ukraine, uh, we can't do that with China. And so we, we have to stop signaling that we're not going to do anything. We can't have lines in the sand that people cross and we don't do anything. Yeah. We have to be credibly. And then economically, again, the one, the number one thing that we could be having a discussion with China about is actually about energy. And we've got, you know, Blinken, Yellen, and Kerry over there talking about, you know, how to shut down the U.S. energy and be, have us become more dependent on China as opposed to having a different discussion where we would be decoupling ourselves from being dependent on China. And finally, Governor, on the subject of the largest economy in the world, the U.S. economy and the stewards of it, former President Trump just in the last hour has said he wouldn't appoint Jerome Powell to another term as Fed chair. Would you? Well... I'm not going to speculate about appointments, uh, you know, going forward, but I would say, you know, during my career as a young entrepreneur, I had an opportunity to serve on the Ninth District uh, Federal Advisory Board, uh, and there's a lot of things the Fed does well. Uh, it's an important uh, important institution, you know, created in 1914 in our country after Theodore Roosevelt and J.P. Morgan, the two of them, averted a financial crisis in our country uh, using J.P. Morgan's balance sheet. Uh, so the Fed plays an important role, but, you know, right now, I mean, we can keep raising interest interest rates, but with all this Biden infrastructure money coming as a state, I see it as governor. You can choke off all of the development on the private sector. I mean, anything, nothing will pencil out if the interest rates are too high and the supply chain costs are too much, whether it's, you know, a multifamily housing or whether it's single family housing or whether it's a new commercial building, which we've got too much of, you know, you could choke, choke all that to a stop. And guess what? They're shoving all this infrastructure money at states. And so in a place like North Dakota, where we've got a short construction season and we've got federal dollars sitting there we can't say we're not going to fix any roads this year but if it's 30 percent higher that's what everything came back this spring and all the bids 30 percent higher we build 70 miles of road instead of 100 and we're, we're sucking up labor and steel and concrete to work on those roads and competing with the private sector and so i don't know how the biden administration thought they could shove a trillion dollars of infrastructure at at states that don't care if it pencils out and think that that wasn't going to create inflation or create competition so we could end up with high interest rates that choke the private sector and we still don't solve the inflation problem. All right, Governor, thank you very much for lending some of your time to Bloomberg today. Joining us from New York, we hope you'll see us here in Washington sometime soon. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, we appreciate the time. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.